Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Check one, two. It's Weekly Weights. It's episode 110, which is big. It's it's like a bit bigger than hitting your century. It just feels like the next natural milestone. I don't know. 110 and then 120 is not a milestone. 125 is. And then there's nothing between that and 150. That's just how it feels to me. What do you think? I think there's no milestones until 150. You reckon 125 isn't a milestone? Are you like... The- no, like if we're talking about in a cricket sense, absolutely not. Yeah, but in a, I mean, in a cricket sense, whatever. But like, I'm thinking in terms of years, if somebody lives to 100, amazing. But then like every year after 100 is like still incredible, but no one really cares. But if you live to 110, for some reason, that would be like the next threshold of crazy, don't you think? Well, then that's just putting it in a different context. If we're talking well, about, so are you with but, cricket. Yeah, but if we're talking about <laughs> podcast episodes, it's probably, uh, it's pretty, it's probably 50. To be honest... There's absolutely nothing exciting about it being episode 110, but I just feel like the audience deserves a bit of like a pat on the back for being here after this long. And we, so we were just talking about how fan service. we were just talking about how our downloads were down a little bit, and I think we've just figured out why. Will <laughs> the quality of the introductions is certainly down. Just horrendous, um, guys. On that exact note, and not so much on that exact note. On a note tangentially related to that, today we're going to be answering questions that are on our audience request form. You can access that via my Instagram in my link tree. You can access that via the Weekly Weights Instagram in their link tree. Can you access it via your link tree, Alex? Well, I have the process link tree on my bio, but it's not on there. Just put it on. I'll put it on there. It's really not hard. This is Alex Hayes, by the way, who once I sent him an email and he asked me to send it to a different email because he wasn't logged into that email on his phone, the phone that he was replying to me from. So he sent me a whole text message instead of typing in your 6 to 12 character password for an, for an account. Come on, man. It was actually the other way around, Will. It was... Wait, you sent me an email and I asked you to send it to another no, email? No, it, was it that, wasn't the other it way was around. It was that my email wasn't on, was on my phone but not my laptop. And I didn't have my phone, I think, for some reason. So why didn't you just log in on your laptop? No, I'm just, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm confused. Trust me, I was confused as well. Point is, we're on <laughs> we're on the audience request form, um, and we've got questions that cover a whole bunch of ground. We got some that talk about biomechanics, some that talk about training philosophy, some that talk about politics. So I reckon the best place for us to begin is right at the beginning. And this question is by Anon. I'm not sure why you people don't want to tell us who you are when you ask us these questions, um, but anyway, this one is by Anon, and it's one of the best grammatically that we've received it's got semicolons and everything so it says in a youtube instructional video brett gibbs who's been on the podcast says you should externally rotate your legs to engage the glutes as you start the deadlift while jp couch that's misspelled jp kauki um in a youtube video says you should internally rotate the legs as you start the deadlift although it doesn't it doesn't say why this is perhaps to engage the adductors in your deadlift episode, you don't talk about either method. Can you please comment on whether one should externally rotate the legs, internally rotate the legs, or just push into the floor with no internal or external rotation? And on. Alex, what do you think? Well, I don't think that we should necessarily be thinking about either in all circumstances. Yeah, I think it depends on where your stance is, how your hips are uh, shaped, and in what direction they are pointing. 
um, whether you pull sumo or conventional, and then where your weaknesses lie. So like, you know, if you have a really narrow stance, for instance, you're probably not going to think about externally rotating uh, your hips because you're probably already going to be in a position to to use your glutes. Whereas if you are extremely wide and you're not thinking about externally rotating your hips, then you probably do have to. So it, it starts with it depends. But what we essentially want is we want to be lined up between the knee and the toe, like the angle of the toe, the shin and the knee. We want to be lined up. So whichever you do naturally, if you're not lined up, you have to think about the other one. Would you agree with that, Will? Uh, in part, I think... Like, I think what you said about just being aligned is sort of the most important thing. Like, when you are deadlifting, you're trying to lift the bar up off the ground and you could externally rotate or internally rotate your femur to your heart's content, but because it's not actually producing force to lift the bar up to do so, it doesn't matter. So what we're interested in doing is orienting, like you said, the the femur within the hip to help us produce the most force we can in hip extension and knee extension um so, but like hip extension is what we're actually worried about here so that we can get the bar off the floor so that means you basically want to make sure that your foot like your foot has a good interface with the ground and your hip can push off and in terms of whether we should be trying to internally rotate or externally rotate to get off the ground um i do think it kind of depends but just as a general principle as you move your hip into flexion it will relatively internally rotate at least until some part like well past 90 degrees of hip flexion. So probably more than you're going to get in at the start of your start of your deadlift setup. I think it's around 120 degrees. I'm not sure. Point is, it does relatively internally rotate. So as in when you are starting your deadlift, your hip is sort of in a slightly internally rotated position, which means that as you lift, your hip will have to externally rotate a little bit whether to do that requires you to actively think about like screwing your foot out against the floor and externally rotating i'm not actually sure that might sometimes be beneficial if you're somebody who has heaps of um heaps of valgus collapse so your knee is collapsing in towards your midline but the fact that your knee collapses in towards your midline might also actually be because you don't have sufficient internal rotation so you're you're like externally rotating heaps to try and get your get your hip into that starting position comfortably and then it's it's relatively internally rotating from that start position as you start lifting off the floor because you didn't have that range of motion in the first place so what you're seeing in that instance is is sort of like symptomatic it's not necessarily saying much about like your conscious movement strategy i probably expressed that really poorly but no, that I, made sense kind of made sense mm-hmm. so so my point is like you should be trying to you should be trying to orient yourself so that you can push your foot into the ground pretty much straight down and align your hips and knees exactly as Alex said. That will probably put you in a relatively internally rotated position at the bottom position, unless you really really lack hip flexion and internal rotation control. In which case, you'll probably have rolled onto the outside of your foot. In which case, thinking of internally rotating to get set up will probably help. But then from there, you will externally rotate just as a matter of like just as a consequence of beginning to extend your hip. Um, and as far as the actual like glute engagement thing goes, the vast majority of your glute fibers pretty much do hip extension. Like your glute max does some external rotation. Um, but I'm not really, I'm, I don't know enough about biomechanics to know whether it's actually going to really help 
like make you stronger in hip extension to think about externally rotating or whether that external rotation will just happen as a consequence and whether those fibers that do the external rotation also add a whole lot of hip extension strength. So I'm kind of, I'm like a little bit skeptical of the idea that it would actually make you way, way stronger to think of that. Um, I think just being stable will make you stronger. But I say that with like a bit of an, I'm not sure around it. Um, And so trying to sort of reconcile the differences between the two. JP might be saying that you need to internally rotate to get into your start position to ensure that you do actually have that even foot pressure and you are lined up to break the like break the ground in a strong position. Possibly, I'd need to see the video and see what he means. And Brett saying like you should screw yourself in against the floor, like yeah, it's not a bad way to get a bit of tension in your hips, and then you will naturally have a bit of external rotation as you start coming up. So yeah, it kind of makes sense. But I don't think that they're entirely speaking across each other in the first place i don't think jp would be saying you should actually be trying to like actively internally rotate at the hip as you stand up because that's just contrary to what you're actually doing yeah i think um what jp's probably getting at there is that a lot of people particularly who lift sumo try to externally rotate too much Mm. um and then like you said they get on the outside of their foot and they can't actually produce a lot of force through the floor Mm. um so it comes back to that idea of aligning yourself like align your hips and your feet and really get your it, it kind of starts with your foot, really. If yeah. your foot is... If you have that tripod foot pressure and you, you're creating that arch in your foot, you are going to be able to create a lot of pressure and a lot of force through the hip and you're going to be able to uh, put a lot of pressure through the floor, which is basically what we want to do. So, yeah, align yourself. Yeah, just get aligned. Um, More yoga. <laughs> honestly, I've been like... COVID, working at my desk, I have been so much stiffer as a consequence... That's something that I took for granted about like working on my feet so much was like how just broadly good it made my body feel. And now I do feel like I would benefit from just a little bit of yoga. Maybe like stand on the balcony and just soak in some sun and and you know, do some yoga poses. Might actually be for the best. You know now know how my body has felt my entire life. Yeah, well I mean if you got off the couch for more than five minutes a day, <laughs> you wouldn't feel so bad. Surely you could get like a standing desk to watch the rockets or like a I really don't like standing desks, man. Yeah, because you're so used to being curled up in the fetal position in bed. I love sitting. Yeah, I bet you do. Sitting is Well, also, tremendous. you've got two very cuddly dogs, hey? So, like... Well, Ace isn't really cuddly. He likes to be near you and, like, touching you, but he doesn't really want cuddles. Oh, but Aubrey's a, very cuddly. There's a, there's a specific word for it, and it's got... It's got tactile in it but it's like a compound word with tactile in it for the characteristics of animals that like to be in contact with the rest of their group and dogs are like that you know dogs all like to sleep touching each other and things um and seals are really like that as well elephant seals and i remember i was in antarctica um subtle flex won't be there for long guys if you haven't been there you should probably go um And and we we're watching elephant seals, and they all lie they all lie down like little sausages in a row, all touching each other. But then when one goes to move, they don't like politely try and get out. They literally crawl over each other, and they are all like multiple ton creatures. Like they're so big, it's so weird. There's a a big um, uh, population of seals in San Francisco down the pier. Have you yeah. been there? No, I haven't. It fucking stinks so yeah. bad. They are the smelliest animals, oh. and there's just hundreds of them all on top of each other. Yeah, they love being on top of each other, and and that was where that that came up. Is the person was like, "Oh, they're really fibrotactile," and I was like, "I don't know what that means." 
Um, but apparently it means they like to touch each other. And so like when one just crawls all over the other one, it's like fine, which I guess is part of why dogs just like walk up to you and just put as much of themselves on top of you as they can. Cute. You know? It's very cute. It is very, it's endearing. All right. Next question. If your friend who is an experienced lifter starts squatting high, should you tell them or do you think it's not your place to say it? Um, why don't you go, Alex? Well, I think it depends. Such a cop out. Such a cop out. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I want more. I want more polarizing. Answers. If if they're doing like lighter re- lighter weights and higher reps, and they're kind of like sort of just getting into the groove again of training, or they're like going back to a new training block, or they're starting a new exercise or something like that, and they're sort of like just finding their feet, then yes, you do tell them. If they've just hit like a PB out of comp and they're really excited for it, I don't think you tell them just to bring them down. Um, There's I th- ways I th- to tell them without there, like bringing them down. There right? is, but you have to kind of read the room and gauge whether like you telling them is going to bring them down or not. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people who would be like super stoked about hitting a PB and then you're like, oh, it was probably borderline or it wasn't depth or whatever, like they're going to maybe like either lash back at you or get really upset sure but let me even like, though i'm gonna play it, devil's advocate you are a power even though you're you, on the platform i know that yes i know um if it's like i think i think it comes down to the coach right it's the coach's job it is the coach's job but the coach isn't always there and you if you are their training partner like one of the things that you rely on for a training partner i think is that informational feedback like you know i have a coach I send him videos. I talk to him. I send him a video checking and things. But if I'm training with, say, like, you know, I often train with Brandon. Um, if I'm training with Brandon, he'll here and there say, that's moving quicker than normal. That's moving slower than normal. Or like, hey, you seem a little bit wonky or unstable today. Usually, <sighs> usually I know when he's telling me, but he's still confirming the things I know. And I think having that immediate feedback from somebody who does have an idea of how you normally move is useful. And likewise, if you go to hit a PB... And you say, hey, like, you know, that moved okay, but like you squatted a bit higher than normal and that was pretty borderline. That's like, that's still useful information, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do, I but do, you do think it's the coach's I job do think ultimately it's, it's to like the, draw lines. Yeah, that's correct. It's the coach's job. But at the same time, like if you are, like the question states, an ex- if your friend is an experienced lifter and they're filming their, themselves and they can't look at their video and objectively tell whether something's even if it's like close to depth, you'll know that it's close. Like even if it is depth or even if it's high, you'll know that it's close either way. So like it's kind of on the lifter themselves, isn't it? I like, I think ultimate responsibility lies with the lifters. Like I think if you, if you squatted high habitually, I don't think you should blame your training partners, but I do also think that part of being a good training partner is being able to, to like give somebody the information that they need. And I, d- I don't think you need to do it in a dickish way and I don't think you need to bring them down. Um, so I think that's important as well because like there are there are psychological considerations. If somebody's in the late stages of their peak and they're going into a squat session that they're a bit worried about, they're coming in with extra fatigue, which often does change how, like, how comfortably people will hit depth or like the way in which they approach the squat, stuff like that. And they've just cut, overcome this big psychological hurdle and made it move okay. And they squatted borderline, like it's not even egregiously high. You know, if you were to then be like, oh man, I'd have some doubts about that. They go from having that big confidence boost that might set them up to perform well at the meet, provided their coach has their head screwed on and doesn't 
like make unrealistic ex- like assumptions about how much they can lift on the basis of a shaky squat in training. But you know it, that's confidence that could be harnessed anyway. You could take that away and replace it with self doubt, like oh wow, can I really do this? Do I have to change the way I squat and all those things? Like that could be a net negative. So I do think it's important to read the room, but I do think that just by and large, if you're training with somebody, you know, and they want your feedback generally, then it's not on you to only give them the rose-colored feedback. It's you give them information and you try and look after them correctly. Like you can give somebody bad news and then redirect them, reframe it and try and find something good about it. I still think that's fine. I agree entirely. And I think it comes down to what you said where if they ask for feedback, right? If someone doesn't ask you and you think it might be borderline, it's probably in your best interest to not say anything. Yeah. yeah. But if they do say, if they show you a video or they say, oh, did you see that squat? What do you think? Was it high? Was it depth? Blah, blah, blah. Then I think you you have every right to then tell them exactly how it is. Yeah. Well, just letting you know that if you and I ever train together, not asking. Just blanket in advance. Don't want to know. Yeah, well, it's probably a bit more you than me these days, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the same thing applies with like, um, with like pausing on bench. Same, exact same thing applies. Like yeah. if someone does like a momentary pause that's probably not competition standard in training and they're really happy with their PB and they don't ask you for your feedback, like you're probably not going to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, by the way, that wasn't paused. That's not going to count in comp because it's going to do nothing but bring them down. You know, I've got, I'm, this is like only the barest wisp of a thought that I'm having now, but I'm curious as to what you think. Like, momentary pauses are definitely easier than long pauses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the skill of reacting to calls. But I feel like if a lifter isn't receiving calls, provided that there is a pause there and it's not like legitimately touch and go, like the bar was still, then that is enough of a standard for them to have a gauge like to have a gauge of their strength. Like it's different if they literally beat a call that you're giving them, in which case you're like, okay, you went too fast. But if it's like yourself calling a pause, they don't really have an obligation to do a super long one just to know it's there. Like provided that it's a solid enough pause, you're like, there was a pause. I'm pretty happy and accepting with it. And with my lifters, if they send me stuff where I'm like, you didn't pause, that's one thing. But if they send me stuff where I'm like, yo, your pauses are short, I might say, don't make your pauses any shorter than that, but it's okay, Mm. you know? I think if somebody were to bench a PB and I'm like, there was a pause, it's probably not the length of a pause in comp. It doesn't invalidate that lift because they didn't beat a call. The call didn't exist. You no, know? I agree. And the, the the thing as a coach there that you do is, let's say someone benches like 140 with a short pause mm. and it's like pretty comfortable. You know, maybe they had five kilos in the tank with that pause level. Yeah. You might go into the comp expecting them to be able to do, you know, 140 or 142 yeah sure for the legitimate competition pause so you have to kind of use that as a tool to kind of gauge like what it's going to be under the correct standards yeah for sure all right next question was should you adjust your off-season training during cutting periods or is rpe enough to auto regulate and then there's a second half of the question um which is, does this differ if you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced? I've listened to your episodes on bulking and cutting, but it felt mostly focused on diet and nutrition. And this one was by at Anonymous Coward. I love that. That's my uh, favorite thing. That was actually pretty funny. They're right that the bulking and cutting um, episodes are mostly focused on nutrition. But let's talk about this. So should you adjust your off-season training during cutting periods or is RPE enough to auto-regulate? Let's start there. What do you reckon? 
Well, I I think you should you should only adjust your off season training when you're cutting if you f- you're finding that you can't recover from training. Um, you're like he mentioned in the question there um, that the bulking and cutting episodes were mostly focused on diet and nutrition, and that's kind of the point. Is that the big things that we're going to change are going to be diet and nutrition, and if you are cutting for a comp. Oh, sorry, if you're cutting during an off-season period or trying to gain weight during an off-season period, the training itself is going to be quite similar. You're going to be you know, using longer rate ranges of motion. You're going to be using exercises that are a little bit further away from the competition lifts and you're going to be pushing them into the sort of higher RPE zones anyway. And that's going to be important if you're cutting anyway because you're going to want to maintain all the muscle that you have. And we know that you need to train at a high enough level and a difficult enough level to do that so i guess the training itself only really has to only really has to change if you're finding that it has to change yeah i think what alex said is pretty much entirely correct so like i don't just because your maintenance volumes for muscle mass are lower than the amount that you require to gain and just because the amount that you can recover from typically comes down a bit when you're cutting doesn't mean that you need to make big preemptive changes what, what I think you should do is continue training more or less as normal and then allow your progress or your RPEs to inform, you know, how much you are recovering and how well you're progressing. And if it is that you are under-recovered, then perhaps you need to add a little bit of food in, rearrange your training a bit or reduce volumes a little. And if you're doing just fine or you're progressing but just progressing at a slower rate, you're still actually doing really well. So you probably don't need to change much at all. Um, and I think there's there's a potential downside in making really, really big like wholesale changes, which is that it leaves you less sort of like ammo, ammo in the tank, ammo in the chamber. Gas in the tank. Gas in the chamber. That's a, that's actually really rogue and I did not, no, I did not mean that the way I said I'm not going to edit it out because I don't, I don't know how to you look, I deeply apologize for literally everyone there. That was, that was really bad. Um, that's so bad. So sorry. Um, wow. Whew. Okay. Weekly ways canceled as of next week. Um, Cancel culture. Well, you're screwed. I need oh, to find a new co-host. Geez, yeah. If anyone out there wants to come and uh, come on the show with me, you're probably going to have to do all of the work because Will does all the work. So if anyone, if anyone wants to come and help me out with the podcast. Uh, okay. Oh yeah, that, one, that one was really bad. But, you know, let's move, let's move on, which is talking about body composition. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, body composition. So yeah, you, like you, you will have less. You will have less rounds in the chamber. That's what we needed to say. You'll have less rounds in the chamber for when you do actually need to make changes. Number one, and number two, like doing plenty of training can only really be helpful until it's too much. At that point as well, like mm-hmm. it is energy expenditure. It is stimulus to maintain the gains that you've made. So I think that going like really, really ham making changes is. Um, is unnecessary and it's, it also probably just adds a bit of stress and there's there might be like a bit of a potential for kind of a nocebo-y thing where if you start having this belief that like oh just because I'm cutting I therefore can't recover I can't progress from training and so on I think you just become hyper vigilant to like little bits of fatigue that you'd otherwise miss whereas if you just go like I'm cutting now but then you have like you go into the gym with enthusiasm being like I'm just going to smash it and get after it in my sessions and stuff and, you know, you get a bit of a pump and you think you're looking lean and all that stuff, that could be, like, psychologically buoying and good. Mm. So um, so in that respect, I'm also a bit, like, hesitant to make crazy changes. If I was writing somebody a block, like, 
absolutely from scratch and I knew they were cutting, I might like temper my expectations a little bit in terms of the volume and things they'd get through. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have like an athlete write to me and be like, I'm two weeks into the four weeks you just sent me and I'm, I'm going to start dieting for some reason. I wouldn't then be like, oh no, I'm going to go reduce all your sets by like 40%. Like, I just don't think that that's needed. Mm. Um, the you, next part you, of the... Or do you have something to you add? Made, to? Yeah, you made an important um, point there about maintenance volume. And it's while, while maintenance volume is, you know, actually quite low, the amount of training that we need to do to maintain the muscle that we have, that's going to change when, you're, when you aren't eating the same calories. So when you're eating less calories, you're actually going to probably want to do um, slightly more training volume than if you were eating at maintenance or in a deficit. So I think that's an important consideration there as well. You're not going to be able to drop your calories down to cutting and drop your training down to maintenance and expect to maintain all the muscle that you have. I don't think that's really um, realistic. I completely agree. The next part of the question was whether those considerations change over a training career. So is it different for a beginner, intermediate, or advanced lifter? Um, I'm going to start with my thoughts. Um, And my thoughts are that for a beginner, I think the need to make changes is going to be way less for a couple of reasons. Um, One, there's the whole trope about like body, body recomposition. So, you know, the ability to gain, gain muscle whilst losing fat being possible for like overweight noobs or noobs generally, and not so possible for advanced people. Um, I think there's a kernel of truth to it but it's probably not entirely the case. I think you probably can see a bit of recomping with advanced lifters still. Um, But one of the reasons it is probably easier for new people is just because they gain at such a fast rate from so little stimulus. And that means you're less likely to be bumping right up against like the most that they can tolerate when you're at a dose that is sufficient to promote growth. So if as a coach, you're training a beginner, chances are your programming is reasonably conservative. They're not really pushing their limits in terms of performance in the gym or recovery in between sessions and so on. And so even if you do take away a few calories, it shouldn't be the difference between them being able to go through their sessions, progress and so on and not recover at all. And what's more, um, Alex has something to say to that, but what's more, like they also have more avenues for progress. So it's not like they're only getting better from gaining muscle. If you're like a rank beginner, you're also going to be just learning how to lift a little bit better, organizing yourself a little bit better technically, like having neural gains and things like that as well. So you should still see improvements in performance with just like the same moderate training dose as normal. And the other thing there on beginners is you probably shouldn't be dedicating large periods of time to cutting anyway. If you are really brand new to lifting, you don't have any muscle on your frame, it's probably not in your best interest unless you are extremely overweight and that's a huge goal for you. But, you know, like beginner lifters should kind of always be thinking about being bigger and gaining muscle. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that is something we've said a number of times. I think it's worth saying that like some people's values are just such that they want to be leaner and they want to lose a bit of weight. And provided you're not already like pretty skinny and just really under-muscled where like you think you want to be ripped, but you just have no muscle on you. I can see like a time and a place for that. But even if you are that person as a beginner, you probably shouldn't be doing extreme cutting approaches either because it's like, what are you cutting down to? And surely you could actually get a bit better of that, like that recomposition effect by sitting more in the middle ground. Mm. So yeah. I, th- yeah. I, I don't see the likelihood that you're a complete beginner to weight training, that you have enough muscle on your frame that's actually worth cutting to. Yeah, but even so, like you might be, you know, people who are in that sort of skinny fat zone where it's like, oh, do I bulk, but then I'm getting fatter or do I cut, but then I'm too small? 
you know, they're always like those people are always stressing out. And like maybe if they oscillated around maintenance or did a bit of slow cutting or a bit of slow bulking, mm. they'd see some improvements. So if you are somebody like that, like I can see your values guiding your decision making, but you probably can't justify an extreme or really protracted cut um, irrespective. So in that sense, I really agree with Alex. Then for the intermediates, um, should you be changing your training during cutting periods? Pretty much pretty much the same as what I said before is you could do so reactively. But another way that you might consider it um, for intermediate and advanced lifters is more just like where you put it within your phasic plan. So if you're at that point, you're probably starting to think about like how am I going to arrange my training over the course of a few months at a time to get the best out of it. And if that's the case, then you might say, well, like in my in my off season, which is how this question was framed, um, and in times when I'm not going into a competition, I'm going to do some body composition focused training. And in order to like potentiate a really good gaining phase, I'm going to spend the first six or eight or 10 weeks or whatever cutting. And then that will lead me with, that will leave me with 14 or 16 weeks where I can gain weight for a bit and then maintain or whatever leading into a comp. And that makes sense in a phasic sense. And so that way you can already start playing planning what is my training phase going to look like during this cutting period which has been almost like calendarized that kind of makes sense but again it's not it's not kind of like that you are cutting that is making you make that change it's you saying well i i want to do these things for my long-term development goals and here's a good way i can marry my my longer term training plans with my nutritional plans Mm. um yeah that's what i think and i think it's good that you've worded the question like that anonymous coward that That we do use the off-season periods um, to make body composition changes. I think it's I think it's the best time in the yearly plan to do so. Um, so that's uh, that's a a good start. It's a good start to the question. Will just showed me something on Instagram and it completely derailed my train of thought. Guys, everybody's going to have to Google diagonal snatches right now. Um, I can't even explain the things that I see. Sometimes that's fantastic. All right. We have more questions. Next question is not a question. Programming the OHP in replacement of the bench. Will. Uh, did we already answer this one? We did not. Okay. Um, don't. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the I mean, the first point is specificity. Powerlifting does not have overhead press in competition, so you can't replace bench press entirely. No, I guess, I guess in this instance, this is somebody who is a general strength trainee or perhaps a strong man. Um, so I've got a couple of considerations for overhead pressing that are actually worth thinking about. So typically people can handle reasonably high volumes of bench press and typically people can handle more exposures to bench press. And one of the reasons is that we can actually keep the range of motion pretty short if we're, if we're efficient at it. So that's the non-inclusive of me, we. Um, if you're efficient at bench you don't actually do that much work rep by rep. And because it's also like pretty highly technical or at least highly technical compared to the other two lifts, um, lots of people do benefit from lots of exposure to it. I think overhead press differs from bench in that respect um, in a lot of ways because in overhead press, you really do take all of the muscles involved or all the joints involved through a very long range of motion. Like if you start your overhead press at the chest or like just below the level of the neck and then you press all the way to overhead with a reach, you've taken your shoulder through like a really large amount of flexion. You're rotating at the shoulder as well. You're going to do some like upward rotation and elevation of the whole shoulder girdle and your arm has gone from extremely bent, like way more bent than it will ever be at the bottom of a bench press to completely straight. 
And so it's, I think in that respect, each rep of overhead press is probably like equivalent to more reps of bench press. So number one is I don't expect that you'll be able to do quite as much volume or quite as much frequency of overhead press. Um, this is speaking more, more like theoretically than practically and weightlifters and things do do a heap of overhead work. But when you think about what they do, the majority of that is not actually strict pressing or even like push pressing. Most weightlifting overhead work is like a variation of, of you know, either a snatch or actual jerking work where you're not really doing a whole lot of pressing per se. You're doing a whole body movement to get the bar overhead and then catching it in that position. And that's that's like kind of categorically different. So I don't think you'll quite be able to do as much overhead press is number one. Number two is if you want to get really good at overhead pressing, you'll have to think about strengthening different muscles and postures. So, you know, bench pressing where we're sitting in that sort of retracted depressed position for the most part and then as we're pressing we're using largely pecs and then anterior delt and tricep when you're pressing overhead you're using the whole deltoid complex and triceps you're using not as much pec at all Um, and you're also having to use those periscapular muscles and the muscles of your shoulder girdle to like orient your scapula and elevate your shoulder girdle in a way that you don't do for bench press so probably you're not going to be doing a whole lot of flat pressing work as accessory work for the overhead press. You'll want to do a decent amount of tricep work. You'll want to do a decent amount of stuff that actually gets you good at accessing those overhead positions, strengthen your thoracic erectors, strengthen your abdominal complex and stuff generally because you'll need to have it. Um, you'll need to have it strong and make sure basically that your shoulder moves really really well, um, and then just get basically brutally strong. So so those would be the things. And then in terms of technique. I don't really know that much about overhead pressing technique, but I presume if you did it sort of twice a week with some type of a focus on actually getting good at it, that that would be a pretty good place to start. Alex? Yeah, when we, I'm going to come at it from a different angle, uh, talking about how we can kind of fit overhead press into a powerlifting style program. Can and I just interrupt you? I'm so glad that you come at things from a different angle to me, because imagine how boring it would be if all we did was just reiterate each other on this podcast. You know? Are you making a joke? No, <laughs> I mean, we pretty much we do all do the that. time. We kind of do that a lot. Yeah, but like as in, you know, imagine if you said, I agree with you and Next I'm going to... Well, it'd be a very short podcast. But even if you just said all the things I said just again, but in your voice, I don't think people would prefer that. Agree. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, come at it from the angle. So how do you fit it in a powerlifting program? Yeah, so like we all said, we're probably not going to be able to handle as many sets of overhead presses as we would with the bench press. Um so when we're going to fit an overhead press slot into a program, we're probably going to be looking at three to four sets. We're not going to be looking at more than four sets. Like, you know, there's often times where we'll see six, seven sets in one session for, for flat bench press. I don't think that's quite possible um, for the overhead press. So that's the first thing. Second thing would be, what's the purpose of it? If you have a very sort of retracted short stroke bench press with a big arch, I don't think using an overhead press and gaining strength in the overhead press is going to actually help your max strength a lot. But what I think it can do is keep your shoulders healthy and keep yourself moving through full range. And I think that's kind of where the overhead press is overrated in that a lot of people will assume big overhead press, big bench, but that's actually not the case. Like you look at someone like Daiki Kadoma, like he's never done an overhead press in probably the last 10 years. All he does is bench press. And he could probably overhead press like not that much. Mm. Um, I think I think it 
probably works a little bit more one way than the other. Like, I think if you had a monster overhead press, you would probably be able to bench a decent amount just by virtue of having crazy strong pressing. Mm. But if you're a monster bencher, that doesn't guarantee that you'd be a good overhead Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like, if, if overhead press is something that you enjoy in your training, by all means do it. Um, but don't think that it's the key to a big bench press because I don't think it is. Um, so yeah, use it for shoulder health purposes, keeping yourself moving through full ranges, getting your scapula moving and gliding along the whole way. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Good tricep work, overhead pressing. I just explained why, because you go through such crazy range of motion and the lockout's hard on your triceps. That's another thing. Mm. Um, like they get your triceps jacked up. All right. Do you find close grip bench or overhead press harder on triceps? Um, uh, I think abruptly they both get hard on triceps. And I don't think it's enormously different, to be honest. I think maybe, maybe even just overhead press. But the problem is that one of my shoulders doesn't like getting in that much flexion. So often that's the problem before my tricep is. So it depends. Fair. What about you? I find close grip much harder on triceps. My my overhead press kind of seems to stick like off the chest, not towards the end. Right. I don't know why that is. No, me either. Um, all right. We have another question, which was... Oh, this one's political. That's good. It says... <clears throat> I think we've actually... This person... Yeah, they said, deliberately not leaving my socials. They asked about Asada. Um, and then they came back and said, it seems the actions of Powerlifting Australia have led to the formation of APU and therefore the divide that currently exists in tested powerlifting in Australia. Do you think the executive and board of PA should be trying to do more to resolve the divide in tested powerlifting? Do you think Powerlifting Australia should be working to be accepted back into the IPF, not to mention Sports Australia and government-funded testing? Do you think that continued litigation is the best way forward for Powerlifting Australia? Gosh, this is loaded and political um so very quick bit of landscape setting where is this question i can't find it's it. it's under the discussion discussion topics question um and you got to scroll down within the answers got it um so i don't think it's entirely true that the actions of pa led to the formation of apu so powerlifting australia along with the oceania region were expelled from the ipf um for various reasons which we covered in our podcast with Robert Wilkes but I don't think anyone would deny that there's not very good blood between the IPF and Gaston and Robert generally so they were excluded and the APU formed sort of to fill that vacuum um, under the assumption that basically if Robert wasn't there and they could you know mend bridges with the IPF then we could have an IPF presence and the APU exists on that basis. They seem to do a re- reasonably good job of doing exactly that. So I don't think it's so much that I don't think it's so much that APU is formed as a reaction against PA as it was formed by people who wanted to have that IPF affiliation. And then you know that Robert was litigating against the IPF is a separate but related issue. And that- but I, I do think that the actions of Robert and Powerlifting Australia in the litigation towards the IPF did for did lead to us being kicked out and then the formation of APU. So I guess yeah. like yeah, in that respect, of, yes. Yeah. Um, but it's not, yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said that like like APU wouldn't have sprung from Powerlifting Australia or at least I don't think so had PA not been 
kicked out of agreed. the IPF. Yeah, agreed. Um, so even for people within powerlifting Australia who don't like Robert Wilkes or would want to see change, I don't think that would have happened had PA been in the IPF still. Um, but then the next part of the question is, do you think that the executive and board of PA should be trying to do more to resolve the divide in tested powerlifting in Australia? Um, I think that that's one of the... That's like a very... Um, like not naive is not the right word but it's kind of optimistic in it's phrasing as though like if we could just all get along then there would only be one federation but um and i don't think that that could sort of i don't think that that actually could happen without the cessation of the existence of one of the two federations either the apu or powerlifting australia so if powerlifting australia said like well well powerlifting will never be a thing and all of our members should just go to APU and be involved in the IPF, then like that bridge could be, um, that bridge could be gapped. That gap could be bridged. Guys, this is just evidence that any slip-ups that I've had this episode have been entirely because my brain's not functioning, um, by the way. So that that gap could be bridged. Um, but otherwise, I don't think it's going to happen. And so, you know, and likewise, I don't think the APU is just going to disintegrate and every drug-tested powerlifter in Australia is going to join world powerlifting anytime soon because there are people who legitimately will want to compete in the IPF at IPF Worlds because that's like the pinnacle of pinnacle of international competition and I think that's a very respectable and fine decision. So, um, so resolving the divide is going to be really hard. What would be good would be if coaches and lifters were able to compete in both federations should they so choose um, without penalties. Um, whereas as it stands, I'm not actually entirely sure what the rule is from the PA perspective. Um, but I believe that if I don't think that the IPF coaches, I, I think that you're, you would be excluded from, from coaching at the IPF, like coaching in an IPF affiliate. If you coached in powerlifting Australia, is that correct? That is correct. But do you know what happens in reverse? Supposedly not the other way around, but I think that's more. PA making a flex like, oh, you can coach in the APU if you like, knowing full well that we're not allowed to anyway. Right. So it's, I think that's like BS. A point. I think it's BS, yeah. yeah. Um, but that would actually be a, if this was an entirely lifter-centric problem, that would actually be a good solution is say to people, well, if you want to compete in the IPF and go to IPF Worlds, you can and you can pay them their fees and you can... You can give them your time and money and go do that stuff. And if you want to do local comps with us because you like our organization, you can, but you're going to have to give us your time and money too. But we're not going to penalize you for making either choice because they're both supposedly drug tested to, to a similar standard. Mm. Whether in reality that actually plays out doesn't matter. Yeah, there like, could potentially be some sort of membership option that is like a co-membership where you get a membership to both federations. Yeah, but I don't think that that is going to happen. And part of the reason it's not going to happen is because it's not an entire lift entirely lifter centric conflict at all because it's in the best interests of both organizations for the other one to not exist because there is competition for government funding so they mentioned sports australia there and um and you know within sports australia they have like a registered a registered body for any for each recognized sport um and so there can only be one registered body for powerlifting within australia who is going to get government funding and government support for drug testing and things like that. Um, and so both PA and the APU want that so that they can be a drug tested fed at water, like at water standards. 
that's not going to happen if the other one's there. Therefore, neither one of them is going to say, okay, well, like, let's make it easy for people to compete in both because the best way to compete and get rid of the other one's existence is to basically dry up their cash pool and make it impossible for people to go to one or the other. So, so should the executive, um, should the executive be trying to do more to bridge the gap? I mean, like from a purely utopian perspective, of course, I think that would be way, way better from a purely pragmatic perspective as an organization. I don't think there's a way for them to do so without actually disadvantaging themselves. And so I don't think speaking rationally that they will, um, I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that particular point? I don't. I, I think um, the formation of world powerlifting has made it very clear that Robert has no intention of ever being back with the IPF. Well, the IPF will never accept and Robert back. The IPF will never accept Robert back. And because of those two things, you know, unless there's a change in leadership, um, I can't see it. I can't see it happening. Yeah. I mean, I guess were Robert Wilkes to leave powerlifting Australia... And Powerlifting Australia say, you know, we're willing to go back to the IPF. Um, then it would be possible to fold APU and Powerlifting Australia in together and do that. But I don't even know if there's appetite for that necessarily. So that's another question. And then do you think that PA should be working to be accepted back into the IPF? Uh, I think we've pretty much answered that. Won't happen. And do you think that continued litigation is the best way forward for powerlifting Australia? So I don't even know who Robert's litigating against at this stage. Um, so any everyone, yeah, <laughs> we'll probably get sued for saying that. Um, so honestly, probably not. But you know, litigation is an entirely, um, entirely valid way of asserting your legal rights and interests, and. You know, if you are a highly litigious person who actually follows through on threats, it might might do you some good at the negotiating table, I guess. It might do you less good than just engineering goodwill. I don't know. But um, but I don't really have a very strong answer to that. And I've got to say, like broadly, powerlifting politics is one of those things that really frustrates me enormously because like if you look around the world generally, like whether you believe everything that Robert has said about about the IPF being shitty and corrupt is almost besides the point. There's enough evidence of the IPF being at least reasonably incompetent organisationally. Like when we were speaking with Tim Kunertz about about his point system, that you get frustrated with the leadership at that level. In the USAPL, there's a drama a month about something dumb they've done, you know, like cancelling collegiate nationals and then refusing to refund lifters. You know, there was that thing, Alex, you were telling me about Sean Noriega's total which was a was it a world record total or a national record total or neither? No, neither. But he he was he was allowed on the platform during COVID. Um, he was allowed to walk on the platform with his mask, not covering his nose, perform all nine lifts, and then have his total disqualified because his mask was because covering his, his nose. mask wasn't covering his nose. You know, you know, like and while I understand the health concerns, you know if the USAPL really cared that much, they would have briefed the referees well enough to kick the lifter off the platform before his first squad and say, hey, mate, you got to put your mask over your nose. And then he would have done that for all nine lifts and then his total would have counted. Like, it's not very fair. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's the stuff about, like, who's allowed to take photos at USAPL meets and, and all sorts of crap like that where it, you know... At pretty much every level, it always seems like there's there's people who are pissed off at how other people are are going about running the business, and often often very legitimately. 
Um, but the problem is that if, you know, if you have this utopian vision of like, wow, I'd love to start a powerlifting federation where everyone was just a good bloke and we all got along and, you know, on the base of good morals and stuff, it only takes one or two people to come in who are motivated a bit by self-interest or who are willing to put other people out in order to assert themselves to have that all fall down. And so like in the sort of real politic sense, it'd be very, very hard to run any sort of global sporting organization and actually get anything done. And the same thing is true, by the way, if you look at pretty much all professional sports in their international bodies, you know, the Olympic, like the Olympic committee is a bit of a joke. You know, rugby internationally is a bit of a joke. The ICC can be a bit of a joke. Like, and you know, it's not a joke. What? The NBA is not a joke. The (laughs) the NBA handles everything so well. Yeah, mate. They just send all their players to Disneyland. Well, but like, yeah, my point is it's really, really hard to get massive numbers of people who are all self-interested and in positions of power to cooperate, you know, without something actually being a dictatorship. And even dictatorships don't work because people resent it. So it's just one of, it's, it's not really that it's just one of those things. Power of things is an incredibly frustrating example, but it is kind of just one of those things, you know? Yeah, man. Like I would, I would love there to, to be two powerlifting federations in Australia like potentially even under the same federation body you just have tested untested mm. like that would be amazing yeah but imagine being a imagine being a federation in australia that was like yeah we'll recognize untested lifters and then going to a cider and being like can you fund our testing <laughs> like it just wouldn't work you know yeah i guess um but yeah all right let's move on politics sucks but what doesn't suck are tempo paused low bar squats mechanical benefits and when to program it and to what intensity I feel like you people think we know more than we know, um, yeah, particularly what? in such a context-dependent question. So tempo pause, low bar squats. Okay, there would be times that I would do this, and I feel like the way, like tempo paused squats, seem like the type of thing that I would do for somebody where I was using it largely as a teaching tool or to like reintroduce a movement that had been like had been aggravating them. So say you're me and you're coming off some recent hip niggles and you need to be exposed to that low bar position um, and you're no longer actually aggravated by being in a deep squat so so pausing in the hole is not going to make things worse more than it makes it better then I might do it for them but in almost every other context the reason I'm using tempo and pausing is to give people an, like a sensation of their positions and give them more chance at error, error correction so if that is the case then I would probably be programming it at reasonably low intensities like in terms of percent one rm and with enough reps in reserve that it's not impossible for them to complete most of their reps really well um, but hard enough that they actually do get some feedback as to whether they're doing things well like it shouldn't be so easy that it feels easy even when they squat badly um, so i appreciate that that's an incredibly vague intensity description but like what that's actually going to amount to in terms of a one rm i don't know and as far as mechanical benefits go um, they're exactly what I said, which is that when you do things slower, you will be more sensitive to to relatively minor deviations in terms of your technical performance of the lift. So you'll feel if your balance is shifting or which muscle which muscle groups are taking the load and so on. So it gives you chances for error correction and detection, which is good. And then the pause also gives you feedback as to whether you are balanced in the hole and then forces you to actually practice the correct reversal pattern and feel whether you actually maintain your even foot pressure as you go to reverse it. So those would be the benefits from my perspective. Alex? Yeah, all of those I agree with. There's two others that I can think of. One is just managing fatigue. Mm-hmm. So why is that the case? Um, because it's a variation that is going to limit load on the bar. 
um, it is not going to be as fatiguing on the system. So you're going to be able to use it for a secondary day or potentially even a third uh, squat day of the week as um, some practice and some volume. It feels harder than it is and it, it feels harder than um, the next day fatigue would um, would assume that it is. Like, you know, would indicate that it would is. indicate that it is. Like during the session, you know, some of the sets might feel quite difficult but then the next day you've got no no issues from it i got um, i got one thing to say to that which is that i actually think the tempo work generally is more fatiguing because the time under tension or like the amount of actual work you do per unit of volume is higher so like when we define work in the mechanical sense it's it's like how much how much work you're doing against gravity right so in in the case of me squatting 100 kilos you know, gravity goes down at 9.8 meters per second squared. So in order for me to go down three times slower, I'm doing three times as much work against gravity on the eccentric. So so the amount of eccentric loading or or the amount of force that I'm producing in that eccentric portion of my squat is way, way, way higher from tempo work, which is one of the reasons why I think our sense of effort gets skewed so far up. Even when it's not that hard, it feels really bad. But I also think that... do I mean, this makes really good intuitive sense if i were to do three sets of five squats at 100 kilos it's way less fatiguing than if i do three sets of five tempo squats at 100 kilos um and so even though it's still only 100 kilos as opposed to 140 the tempo does add a really significant fatiguing effect um and so one thing that i've actually been doing with a lot of my lifters is progressing their easy work as the main work gets harder from being tempo to being say a long pause and then just being a normal pause or whatever um for a bench press and for a squat it might go from being a tempo to being a pause to being a normal squat because the tempo is so is actually still so fatiguing relative to just having a pause generally or just doing the lift normally you know yeah i feel like that's the case if you push the set quite hard it's going to be very fatiguing but the way that i would program this variation in this instance is like you know, we're doing somewhere between three and five reps in each set. Mm. Up here is going to be sub six, like yeah. considerably sub six, and load's going to be you know between fifty and sixty five percent, maybe seventy percent at the most. Yeah. Um. So you know, You've we're sort of room. we're under the threshold where we're going to have DOMs. We're under the threshold where you know the sets are climbing really past that RP threshold where we're going to see the fatigue the next day. Yeah. Um. So in that instance, like it can be a good tool to manage fatigue. The other the other um, consideration that I would use is just practice. Yeah. Like like you alluded to, um, every mistake that you make is exacerbated because it's so slow. Um, you'll learn a lot faster, and you just get extra work in without that extra fatigue. Like it's just uh, it's a good way to add in an additional um, squat session for practice reasons, um, without creating too much fatigue. Dope. All right, we have one more exercise to review which is the snatch grip RDL. Did we answer that one? I don't think we did. No, we did. We, we did, did trap bar, I think. Yeah, we did do trap bar. All right, snatch grip RDL, last one. So this one they gave us no direction. So snatch grip RDLs are <laughs> snatch grip RDLs are going to be harder on your back generally um, and on your upper back. One of the reasons is that you are you are making your arms way shorter re- like relatively, you're not reaching as far down your leg. Um, when you take them out wide, which means you're going to be in a more bent over position for longer. And you're also sort of disadvantaging your lats. So it's harder to keep the bar in close against yourself. So because you are spending more time bent over, 
Um, and because you're not quite generating as much tension through your lats, your upper back, particularly like as in your thoracic extensors, particularly get a whole lot of extra work. Um, I do actually think because they punish you so much for letting the bar drift away from you because of that, because you're so bent over and stuff, they're actually a really good way to teach you to keep barring close against yourself. Um, but I don't really like to use them for very heavy work. I don't mind doing snatch grip RDLs as um, as like an RDL variation for people who also do need that upper back strengthening effect. Um, and just like with tempos, it does limit the absolute intensity that people are handling. Snatch grip is going to limit the absolute intensity that somebody handles as well. So you could you could do a snatch grip RDL and then turn that into a normal RDL or something in a later phase if you wanted to progress the load that they're handling. But most of the purpose of me doing them is to get people that extra hip work and also really torch their upper back. Yeah, I agree with that. Like uh, Chris is a good example of both of those things. Struggles mm-hmm. to get her lats really tight off the floor. Generally, her upper back is the thing that loses out in her squats and her deadlifts. Um, so that's a great reason to use that variation i think if you are going to use it you've got to be careful with how much um barbell rowing and how much um deadlift volume they're doing uh beside it because like you mentioned you're going to be very bent over and you're going to be in that position a lot you can't really afford to be in that position to the point where it's like too much volume in that position so you got to be a little bit more a little bit careful with you know if if you are going to have a snatch grip um, deadlift in there you might want to take barbell rows out for that those two blocks and then when you put normal RDLs in you can put barbell rows back in or whatever but that's just a, a thought right agree with that um, I reckon we take a quick break and then we do a quick underrated overrated properly rated what do you think yeah sick Matt weekly weights we're back on air it's weekly weights it's episode 110 um, it's been a wild ride today um, I just want to apologize again for accidentally making a Holocaust reference. That actually really upset me. Well, I, well I think your time's over anyway, so yeah. just run out the clock. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> who is going to be your new co-host? <laughs> Maybe Matt. Maybe Matt. Fuck that. He's guy. coming on next week. Is he? No. Next week we're going to have Arian Kamisi on. Well, um, he's coming on next week. He'll be oh, released. Like we're recording the, with yeah. Matt next week. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we're going to do underrated, overrated, there's a smooth segue for you. We're going to do that one. Alex, you had one for me. Will, overrated, underrated, properly rated, peak speak. This is a hard one. I'll tell you why it's hard. Because I've never wasted my time listening to an episode of that trash podcast. So I couldn't possibly, I couldn't, like, I know they're bad. I want to start with that. Like, objectively speaking, one of the worst podcasts ever released. What I don't know for certain is whether they're, like, truly... Like, whether they're just as bad as I would expect, in which case they're about properly rated, whether they're even worse than I could have imagined, in which case they're actually overrated, or whether they're, like, really bad, but not quite as bad as I expected. Like, I'd have to actually give... Shero and Thomas a bit of a pat on the back and be like wow you guys weren't that abysmal and that's actually hard for me to say so I'm gonna probably say that they're actually overrated I think that they're probably even worse than my worst nightmares about how bad they are what do you think I agree just that bad I mean I have listened to 
a lot of their podcasts just for market research Why? purposes. Are you okay, man? And also, I like to laugh. Market research. Yeah. You're telling me that you won't prepare for our own <laughs> podcast, but you'll listen to other podcasts to prepare. <laughs> no, mostly for me, for me, it's a comedy podcast. Yeah. I just like to observe and laugh at the It's at a comedy the like that movie, The things. Room. You know how that's the worst movie ever? I haven't the, seen it. Yeah, we'll be lucky. Um, no, it's like it's a movie that's cult because it is the worst movie ever, and so they give people spoons to throw at the screen when they're watching it. I don't know why the spoons. That doesn't really make sense. I haven't seen it, but they have screenings of it at like Cremorne Orpheum and things. You don't know about it? Never heard of okay, it. Okay, yeah, it's like the worst movie ever. All right. Um, okay. Jokes aside, I have listened to a little bit of Peak Speak. It's all right. Overrated. <laughs> okay, Alex, your turn. While we're on the peak speak theme, overrated, underrated, probably rated. Mountain biking. Mountain biking. Yeah, Shero's been mountain biking. Well, and he's been rock climbing. He's such a like well-rounded athlete. I don't know, man. Like I've actually never been mountain biking. Mountain biking. Yeah. Like I've been cycling on a tr- like a dirt track but like not not up in the mountains yeah but you don't have to be in the mountains like technically mountain biking is just well, like so it's just dirt track biking then it's not actually mountain biking yeah okay well so dirt track biking they kind of call it single track no i i never i've never really found riding a bike that enjoyable yeah it's weird so you're like really kyphotic so i feel like you'd enjoy it for me overrated okay but i can see the appeal like getting into nature getting moving getting a sweat yeah. i can see the appeal but for me, overrated. What, what do you think, Will? Well, I used to be a really avid mountain biker when I was younger, but like just because I was enthusiastic doesn't mean I was good. And so I ended up going to hospital a few times because I kept falling off. Um, and the problem was I was really into like dirt jumping and doing like going and like jumping off rocks and shit on my bike. And, and it was really good fun and it's very exhilarating. And there is a really bizarre feeling when you actually do like big jumps and things and when you land smoothly and stuff it feels really cool um however it's one of those things where to get good at it you basically just have to fall off a lot and hurt yourself a lot and the equipment's expensive um so that kind of sucked what made you think of mountain biking honestly i just a couple of my really good mates really liked it and you know when you're young and it's like if your mates want to do something you're like fuck i'm just gonna get full on into that i was kind of that guy i'd just like if my mates did things i'd be like i'm just gonna try that and then get neck level into it that was like me with like wwe when i was like 10 really yeah i had a couple of friends who were like super into wwe like this is way back when like triple h and um the rock and stuff were in wwe yeah like right before it you, when it was wwf and then they had to swap because of the world wildlife, wildlife foundation yeah like back then um and i tried so hard to enjoy professional wrestling and i never liked it i hated it so much it was See, such I a actually waste of time really liked mountain biking it was fun but honestly like these days the idea of mountain biking is not appealing at all to me but what or like at least in that way like i don't really want to go jump off anything ever again i'm very fine not but something that i did only a few times was like just cross-country riding so what you said where like you get out and you ride some trails and like fun cross-country mountain biking you have you have segments of single track so where it's literally just like you know a bit of a road through the bushes on like a dirt track but then also sections where things are a little bit tighter and there's some technical bits where you have to like pick your way around a couple of obstacles and like 
negotiate your way down a couple of rocks and things like that but it's not about like getting big air or anything it's about like being in nature and actually like using your bike skillfully um and that is really good fun and feels very very wholesome Um, sounds difficult I, I mean, like, I'm sure it's probably difficult if you want to go really, really fast or, or if you do things that are really technical. But when I say, like, pick your way through obstacles, often it's literally, like, you get to a little rock that's kind of got a bit of a lip on it and, like, a curved surface on one part and a corner just after. And you've got to, like, sort of slow yourself down, set a line and, like, get down the rock in time to make it around the bend. Like, it's not it's not crazy hard, but little bits like that keep you thinking a lot more. Like, the idea to me of getting on a, on a bike and just cycling for 100 k's down the road couldn't be more boring like can't think of anything i'd rather do less but when you have those little elements when you're riding your bike and like i said you're in nature you can't see other people there's something very enjoyable about that and i think it's a bit like um i did a couple of those those runs the fun runs like the um like the tough mudder and stuff back in the day where you'd run like i did a couple that were 5ks and i did a 14k one as well where you run and then like there's obstacles and things yeah like every kilometer there's one obstacle or something yeah and because it breaks up just the monotony of what you're doing with something where it's like oh i'm gonna use my brain i get to use like my body in a different way you know like that bit of novelty and fun made made those runs okay the 14k one was enough i was pretty over that when i was done Mm. but like but mountain biking or like cross-country mountain biking can be a bit the same like if somebody said let's go ride single track for 10ks i'd be like oh it seems boring but if it was like, oh, there's two Ks of single track interspersed between like, you know, a few 1K sections of like of some tighter stuff where you're figuring things out like that, I think it was really good fun. Mm, that's definitely more exciting to me than like, like you said, just going straight on a track. Yeah. You know what sucks is all cyclists on the road. <laughs> and particularly around where I live, when I take the dogs for a walk, yeah. there's like this cycle track. And you have to keep the dogs in the lead, which I do. But fuck me, they fly down these roads, which are like, it's it's 90% people walking dogs. And then they just fly down without any consideration. And they're all like old men in their 40s who suck. And they get so... <laughs> and like, the thing, that, the thing that gets me is like, they're probably riding to work, but they're like in full Lycra and they're so into it and it, they're shit. Well, they're, just, they're just hobbyists and they think they're professional right they think they're Lance Armstrong and to be fair suck. you don't want to ride to work and then spend a whole day in your like suit that doesn't work you gotta wear your lycra and then change at work that's fine of course um, but one thing I will say like I have this thing I get annoyed by cyclists on the road um, but I treat them like they're a collective like they all know what the others are doing when they really don't and around here um, where I'm now where, what's your address, Will? Tell everyone. Uh, <laughs> fucking one, I told one of my clients who asked today, it's 123 Nunya Avenue, Nunya. Um, 123 Fake Street? Yeah, Fake Street, um, There's Well, there's this area near me where it's like there's lots of really tight curves and it's on the way up a hill and there's parked cars on either side of the road. Um, and cyclists ride up it and they, they never really keep way off to the left. So in order to overtake them, you need to swerve a little bit out into the oncoming lane, which is already bad, but and because there's tight curves and like you're worried about cars coming down. But then the problem is, it's not the cars that are going fast on the way down, it's cyclists going the other direction that are like bombing the hill, taking tight lines through like narrow curves. They're the worst. 
And I'm like, mate, like, you know, I'm trying to overtake this guy so I don't kill him. I don't want to accidentally kill you because you're coming around a curve going too fast. It's all entitled rich old men. <laughs> I don't think it is. It is, man. <laughs> it is. No, I have this thing where, like, I don't want to resent cyclists because I actually think what they're doing is good and wholesome. And I would, like, I would encourage people to ride a bike. But I think our city doesn't have good infrastructure for riding bikes. And we're also a little bit too hilly. Yeah. Have you been to um, LA where they have the like bike lane in everywhere? No, I haven't. And they've got like sco- like a lane for bikes and scooters and stuff? No, I haven't. And you can rent these rent scooters on the side of the road. You get this app and you just scan the, the code. Like an electric scooter? Yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. It's the best. And there's a f- proper lane for you on the road in, in your own lane. It's, a, it's mad. Well, I know like in the Netherlands, which is really flat, that cycling is like... like if anything, like more legitimate than having a car. And so everybody just rides their bikes. Like, I'm all for it so long as it makes sense in the traffic and you're not an asshole. But that seems to never be the case in Sydney. Yeah. But the problem, like, <laughs> I agree with you, but I also feel like because my track record, this episode of accidentally vilifying people is really bad. You're going to be cancelled anyway, so just may as well... <laughs> yeah, I might as well lead into it. Fuck cyclists, I'm done. <laughs> Turn it up to 100, Will. <laughs> yeah, all right. Guys, that's been weekly... <laughs> It's been weekly waits for the week. I'm Will. I'm not saying my socials this time because I'm in <laughs> trouble. I feel bad. Yeah, I'm Alex. Alex has underscore process. We'll chat to you guys next week. I won't.